reading. Shorter than most. Good morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be in this space again, to have the grace to speak before you. You pray with me. O God of great love, be present with us now. Help us to know how we can love more. Cornell West gifted us with this quote. Justice is what love looks like in public. So today I invite you all to journey with me to unpack how we as a congregation might be able to love more in public. My topic is not light, but I want us to use this waning season of Lent to reflect on justice denied, democracy and threat, and liberalism shortcomings. Perhaps together we can find a source of hope, or if not, perhaps we should become the source of hope. We are not in normal times. The American experiment has always been imperfect, indeed sinful, yet it has been an experiment with the hope of one day attaining a more perfect union. Reinhold Niebuhr encapsulated the pursuit like this. Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. But what if our democracy is frail? Who then holds our inclination to injustice at bay? I traveled to Philadelphia right after a young boy from the near north side was tragically murdered in 2016. I had seen the Liberty Bell before, but I wanted to visit her again. As I walked toward her, I had new eyes. I had new grief. I walked past the stone walls with pictures of the abolitionist movement, women's suffrage, and the civil rights movement. As I walked, I gathered the memories of the histories of justice denied. As I walked, I carried those histories with me until this symbol of freedom sat before me. And I saw it as if for the first time. Her inscription is from Leviticus 25.10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land until all the inhabitants thereof. The Hebrew text refers, this Hebrew text refers to the year of the Jubilee which is worthy of a whole sermon in and of itself, as it contains instructions to the Israelites to return land ownership and free any slaves every 50 years. The Israelites themselves never did what was required of them in the year of Jubilee, which is both ironic and perhaps human. It is also notable that our national symbol of liberty contains a radical notion of land ownership, and freedom for the enslaved. As I drew near this beacon, I saw the crack. I heard the crack. I felt the crack whip across my shoulders and burst my weary heart. You see, in that moment, I saw Josue, 
a young boy, a sixth grader, a star student, a son and a brother. He was merely walking home from an after-school program, and then the crack of our society extinguished the gift of his life. Osway's death struck me at the core of my being, and standing before the Liberty Bell, I heard the weeping of generations. Generations of those whose lives have not mattered in the face of the American experiment, whose lives were cut short in order to help others gain more, whose lives were cut short for power, for greed, for fear, for the color of their skin and the identity of their gender. An American system that predicates your life expectancy by the zip code for which you are able to reside. I saw the Liberty Bell. The work I have done with Avenue is centered on making communities healthier, safer, more sustainable places for people to thrive. My work is about justice. We have won national awards for our efforts. We have built playgrounds and homes, painted murals, opened new schools, and brought new opportunities to existing schools. Crime rates have decreased. Regular, ordinary folks in these communities are living, leading efforts, both big and small, to help make it all better. Inspiring hope is at the core of my effort. Hope that things can be better if we work together. And in the near north side, hope was nurtured and had been born in hundreds of hearts. And then on a normal day, as my boys played less than two miles away on their preschool playground, a stranger attacked a sixth grader as he walked the four blocks toward his home. For me, Josue's murder represents the failure of our American systems, the lack of mental health care facilities, the drug epidemic, toxic masculinity, and the suffocating omnipresence of violence. The fact that his murderer is still unknown, a failure of our democracy. The investigation handed off after a November election to a new chief of police and a new DA. The questions in my mind whether the, this investigation was handled the way it would have been handled if it had been a young suburban white victim would they have brought dogs out to search the bayous? Would they have immediately organized a manhunt throughout the neighborhood? I hate what I suspect the answers to these questions are. You see, the Northside community is a community of color. And like many communities of color around our nation, it, they, are and have been under attack. Many times I have felt that my work in the community was applauded when I knew that all I had was a squirt gun and the, fi the, the fires of the wealth gap, inequitable school funding, and more continued to rage. And people were like, good job. And then, in 2016, a November election felt around the world. The fire is larger in these communities and more insidious. We are still doing big and small things, but the forces of state tax laws, federal immigration policies, the intentional decades-long attack on our public school system, the lack of livable wages, and so much more 
These forces work to crack the human spirit and threaten to extinguish hope. The Northside is but one of many communities of color that are in the crosshairs of national, state, and local policies failing, both intentionally and unintentionally, to serve the common good. The question I've wondered for so long, if humans create the systems that hold together the common good, education, health, city governments, why are our systems so inhumane? I really have struggled with this one a really long time. And now, perhaps my naivety with Lent is waning a bit, as I realize that perhaps these systems have been built to serve some and to not serve others. Martin Luther King Jr. said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But a newer prophetic voice, ta Coates, has said, and I paraphrase, Sometimes the arc is too far away. If you are the one being lynched by a mad mob, the arc has not bent for you. If you are the one left dying on the side of the street, or imprisoned falsely for decades, or ripped from your family home because you lack papers to live your life, the ark has not bent for you. For justice delayed is justice denied. Each morning we awake to an American reality. Let's solve our gun problems by giving teachers guns. Let's replace our Secretary of State. Let's deport another mom and let her three children languish. Let's build a wall. Fire up the coal plants. Let's pretend to be a Christian nation, all the while dismantling the last remnants of human hope. I don't know how it feels for you guys to be in this moment in time in this country. But if you would, speak one word of how you feel about our national and geopolitical world. Just one word. Share it with me now. Hopeful. Always need one. Numb, hate, fear, anger, sickness, despair, exhaustion, devastation, surrendered, hope. I, I hear you. And I feel those deeply. In fact, I feel all this so deeply that I want to shut it off. And in many ways, recently I have. What a privilege to be a white American woman. I can choose to unplug. I can choose to disconnect from NPR, to forget to read the newspaper. It's a privilege. I can fight justice 12 hours a day. And on weekends, drink margaritas and yoga pants while my kids play on artificial turf surrounded by the bounty of capitalistic aspirations. I can dig elbow deep into poverty and organize the vote, and I can never attend my boys' PTA meetings because I'm really not needed. I can kneel in solidarity and rant on Facebook about Black Lives Matter, and then I can send my 16-year-old out into the world 
without worry that he might be perceived as a threat and killed for the very act of wearing a hoodie. I acknowledge my privilege and my weakness in wanting to retreat. I want to hide from all the grief, from all the injustice, but I really want to hide from the benefits I receive from this very broken, life-extinguishing system. Parker Palmer offers this in the face of all of that. The deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. There are a few of the, these are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without faith, hope, and love. I wanted to write this sermon so that I, perhaps we, could work through our privilege and our despair, our love and our hate, our grief and our anger, so that we could come through the darkness and claim the light that is rightfully ours, the light of our common humanity, our common hope, our very lives, so that we could find the courage to fight for our democracy. I said I would talk about the liberal conundrum. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. To be reasoned yet faithful, to live in the gray and to embrace the holy other, to be open to all and centered in one. What does it mean to be a liberal Christian? A faith based on thinking. When we say here where heart and mind meet, a lot of the time I think we lead with the mind. And the heart, of course we are caring, but the heart comes secondarily to the prowess of our intellectual faith. A faith based on solving the world's problems. A faith fighting for social justice at least intellectually. Reinhold Niebuhr offers this on liberalism. It is too intellectual and too little emotional to be an efficient force of history. Ouch. (laughs) A faith of the mind more than the heart. I admit it's a lot easier to deal with the mind of things. When we ask the heart to internalize the world's grief, it is a great burden to bear. But what are we to do now? My friends, we are not in a time of comfort. In fact, I believe we are in treacherous times. Many of the things we hold of utmost importance are under attack. I was going to say NPR and public, uh, national parks and stuff, but I, I took that out of there. I just thought. <laughs> so I ask... What resources do we have to confront these challenges? How do we stand when all that we love, believe in, and care so deeply about is under assault? When little girls are ripped from their hospital beds and taken to an encampment because of her undocumented status? When young 17-year-old boys are killed by exploding boxes because of the color of their skin right here in Austin, Texas in 2018? What strength can we find in our faith to make it through the storm? In searching for hope, because I said I would mention that too, 
I turn to Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel. Heschel was born into a prominent Hasidic Jewish family in Poland in 1907. He immigrated to the United States in 1940. He became best known in American culture during the 1960s as he infused the theology and example of the Hebrew prophets into the social and political tumult of his time. He did not grow up in a time of comfort. He lost many of his family members in the Holocaust. And yet, courageously, he witnessed against the Vietnam War. He stood beside Martin Luther King Jr. He walked the halls during a divisive t- of Congress during a divisive time, offering a perspective of the Jewish faith that might inform our own today. A man who lost almost his entire family in the Holocaust must have been plagued by doubt as to God's presence in the world. But for this rabbi, because of his personal experiences of God and God's presence in his life, he was able to continue to live a life of faith. So there wasn't and isn't certainty available, but for him, there was experience and there was faith. Heschel said, God can be both present in our lives and not in control of our lives. God can be a source of hope and courage. One must not accept that you must believe in a providential God to be a person of faith. In the face of great atrocities throughout the world, Heschel understood theodicy, worthy of a whole other sermon. If God is all loving and all good, what explains all the evil in the world? Do we need to justify God? Heschel's answer is no. He wrote that his life was altered when he did a doctoral dissertation about the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And what he found compelling there was that the God who created heaven and earth cared about the fate of widows and orphans. And he said that this is somehow scandalous. It's beyond logic. How could it be that the great God of the world cares about individuals and therefore about you and about me. And why would this be so? It is radical to think about, isn't it? That God loves us. That God loved Josue. That God loved all 5,000 African Americans that were lynched in this country. We do not have to defend God in this. Elie Wiesel in Night, his memoir of the Holocaust, when asked where was God during the encampment, Elie answered, he's hanging in the gallows. Where was God when the lives of 40 civil rights activists were extinguished by bombs, by bullets, by hate? God is always right there. Doesn't it seem that right there is often too far away? This is the struggle, and my personal struggle with this question has informed my theology, which can be summarized like this. God has no hands but ours. God has no voice unless we speak. God is love, but we are the vessels, the containers of that love. And so we must be about loving publicly through justice. Special said it like this. God wants something from us. God needs us to help God make this world better. The God of the Bible is the parent of humanity and cannot stand to see the suffering of God's children. 
And God needs God's other children, us, to take care of the suffering. So again, I ask, how do we step up into this role of public love? How do we learn to bear the grief of our brothers and sisters? For me, sometimes the answer is an unlikely place. Christian radio. When I was 17, you can laugh a little bit. When I was 17, I told you it was, it was heavy. Um, when I was 17 and serving as a summer missionary in the near north side, I was introduced to a Christian station in this area. And we would jam to a hit song that was called Jesus Freak. A little, little scandalous now, I guess. And we would goofily hold hands and sing, and friends are friends forever, if the Lord's the yeah. When I listen these days, I cringe when I hear the song, Our God is Greater. It's very triumphant and conquering. But you know, I also fall to my knees when I hear the song, I Can Only Imagine. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me, surrounded by your glory. What will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? In the past, I've turned off the station because the theology, see my brain, the theology was so wrong. I didn't want my boys to hear it. But recently, I haven't changed the station. Even on Our God is Greater. You see, listening to this station connects me to my past. It connects me to the hope of a Christian faith I embraced as an eight-year-old. It connects me to something higher than myself. It connects me to what Heschel alluded to, to an experience with God. Have you had an experience with God? The feeling of being a part of something bigger than yourself. The feeling of being in community in love, in justice. There's another song that stands out, The Anchor Holds, In Spite of the Storm. I have fallen on my knees as I walk the aged seas. The anchor holds in spite of the storm. In times like these, I have found myself drawn more and more to thin spaces, places of the spirit, Places where I might once again feel the spirit that connects us all. See, for me to stand on intellectualized faith, I often feel the need to divorce myself from the spiritual. Feeling aspects of that same faith. The liberal conundrum of erring on the side of the intellect is hard to do in times like these. A lot of things don't make sense. We need a way to embrace spirit, hope, light. In our midst, we have endured generations In our midst, we have people of faith who have endured generations of suffering. Suffering many of us in this room can never fully grasp. One last story. Last year, I had the honor of attending David's funeral. David was my friend's Glenn's dear husband of 36 years. This funeral was held in downtown Houston at one of the first and most historic African-American churches in the city, Antioch Missionary Baptist Church. The sanctuary itself is awe-inspiring. The pomp and circumstance of the funeral was humbling. The choir, the soloist who made me weep and see the other side at the same time, brought me to my knees and made me sick with the grief that reveals such deep faith. You see, in every step, in every action, in every word, these faithful 
were resisting the oppression of this country, tis of thee. The suits, the medals, the hierarchy, the recognition, the female and male leadership, all stood in the lineage of generations of resistors. These members, and the one laid to rest, were and are the woke amongst us, the faithful. Suffering the indignities of the history of slavery and the present reality of institutional racism, with their faces turned toward heaven, where every knee shall bow, and the broken will be made whole, and the sick will be healed, and more pain, no more pain, and no more suffering. You see, these faithful have never lived in comfort in this country. Their comfort was stolen on ships that sailed from homelands never to be seen again. When they sing of glory, they sing of a place that calls to them deep in their souls. They sing with the hope of one day having the full dignity of their beautiful humanity. They sing in anger and in love. They praise with despair and with hope. They raise their hands and their hearts. They know all too well the grief of justice denied. They sing for the hope of the ark being pulled even slightly more toward justice. James H. Cohn and the cross and the lynching tree helped me understand more what I experienced during that service. He helped me see that the reason many times white folks and black folks attend different churches is because we have different experiences of grief. I, perhaps we, have had too little empathy regarding black suffering in the white community. But perhaps now, now during this time of shared grief, we can find new ways to be together, to fight for hope, for love, in public. And for us now, here in this space, perhaps we too need to fall on our knees. We need to embrace the hidden oneness that binds us all together. Let's debate less and act more. Let's pray not because God answers, but because we must pray to survive. Let's be the bridge weavers in a divided nation and world. Let us be the truth, the hope, and the peace. In a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. When I was little, I was taught that God is love. And if justice is what love looks like in public, then God can only be known, be made known through our fight for a more just, democratic society with justice and liberty for all. And if God has no hands but ours, it seems fitting that the inside of the rabbis is this. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. You see, the arc of the moral universe wholly depends on us, on our courage, on our faith, on us forcing it to continue bending toward the vision of the common good. We must love, which means we must act. So I offer a few calls to action for you. One, find a way to use this time of shared grief to propel you toward greater levels of love in public, doing the work of justice. Fight for public schools. Host a study group that investigates the history and the present struggle for their very existence. Two, 
find six ways to do something intentionally anti-racist. You can't dismantle a system by just understanding it. Call the local news station when they castigate an entire population. Call out racism when it appears in print media. It still happens all the time. Speak up when colleagues or friends utter intended or unintended racist comments. Deal with those who bear the lion's share of the weight of this broken racist system. And three, find a new or an old spiritual practice that feeds your heart and bolsters your courage. Journal, maybe meditation, singing, join us, joining a small group, starting a small group, paint, dance, volunteer, be love. I close today with a paraphrase of Heschel's words. Remember that there is, a, there is meaning beyond absurdity, that every little, little deed counts, that every word has power, and that we can do, everyone, our share to redeem the world. In spite of all incongruities and all the frustration and all disappointments, above all, Remember that the meaning of life is to build life as if it were a work of art. You're not a machine. You are a work of art. Let us help everyone fulfill their full potential by letting their light and their art shine. Unalam.